This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. All right, welcome back to the podcast, another edition of the College Football Fix. I am Dan Walken from USA Today Sports, joined by Paul Meyerberg. Paul, I want to start the podcast today by making one thing very clear to our listeners, anyone who follows me on Twitter, anyone who is just interested in college football. Urban Meyer is not going to be the next coach at USC. Can you guys just get that through your heads? Every time Urban Meyer comes up, and he's obviously come up a lot over the past several days for reasons that we're all aware of, I get 100 tweets about he's doing this so he can go to USC. Uh, Part of that equation has got to be USC needing to want him to be their next coach. That ain't going to happen. Dan, why is Urban in the news? Well, you see, there was a video from his bar in Columbus the other night where a woman was doing some very close uh, dancing. It seemed like Urban was touchy-feely. It wasn't a great look, and he's had to profusely apologize to the entire world, and it seems like he's on a path to getting fired as the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Close dancing and touchy-feely is a bad combo, Dan. That's why when I was a kid, when I would go to dances, they'd put balloons between us. Because then you don't have close dancing and you can't do touchy. This is like the Sadie Hawkins. Exactly. The yeah. cha-cha-cha. The Sadie Hawkins Fox dance. Um, you ever been to Urban's Bar? You ever had a beer there in Columbus? No, I've not been. No, have not. Don't think I want to go. Would you go? Would you go have a steak and a oh, no. No, no, no. glass of wine? Um, I'd have a glass of wine. I'd have a glass of wine anywhere. Would not have a steak at Urban Meyer's restaurant or bar, bar slash restaurant. If we actually thought in the first place that Urban Meyer was going to be the next head coach at USC, yeah, I think we can put those thoughts to rest. Interesting today from Brett McMurphy online, at least I saw, and I'll probably misquote the numbers, but something like, you know, 70-something percent of ADs that he polled said Urban Meyer is unhirable as a college coach. You know, the sum total of all that we've seen from him over the years, I think, makes him unhirable. Certainly from a place like USC or LSU, I don't know how you can stomach the idea of that. But um, he certainly is going to get a chance to lose more games with the Jaguars, it seems like. If he can get through what happened this week, he probably can get through the entire season. Hopefully. I don't want to say that he's unhirable. I think most people just don't want to deal with the drama. They know that no matter what job he's in, it's a short time proposition. He's there four years, five years max, and he's out. He's going to self destruct, and there's going to be all kinds of issues along the way because he's going to bring all of his lackeys with him, and it's just going to cause problems. And we said from the beginning the idea of Urban going to the NFL was probably not a great idea. That it just the the skills that made him a good college coach were not really translatable mostly to the NFL. We're seeing how that is playing out in real time. But I do think there's a damage being done to his reputation generally because it's an accumulation of him not being honest, not being forthright, not, you know, you know sort of the, the, the holier than thou urban, which he can just never turn off, being exposed as completely fraudulent. And that's why people are so wrapped up in the story. It's not about the dancing and whatever. It's it's. It's the sanctimony, and it's the fact that he wrote a book about you know leadership lessons, and it's all the 
mumbo jumbo psycho babble family stuff that he he builds his culture around and then it's just you know you just see that it's it's not there you see that when push comes to shove and the cameras are on and he's not aware and maybe he's got a few drinks in him that it it kind of ends up um you know it kind of ends up with egg on his face and whether that's the Zach Smith situation or whether that's this deal, it just all looks completely disingenuous. And I do think the credibility that he's blown would maybe even turn off some people who, who might've otherwise considered hiring. Yeah. Um, like touching butts alone is not a reason not to hire somebody. If we didn't hire coaches based off their butt touching, we'd be digging pretty far deep into the profession to get our top level college coaches. It's just, it's just, there's a lot of butt touching at, at most football practices. Well, yeah, uh, we're talking a different type, maybe a little different kind, right. but yeah, but look like Bobby Petrino, uh, wrote a, went on a highway to hell with his office assistant, crashed it, lied about it. Um, had that great press conference where he had the neck brace and black eyes looked like he had fought Mike Tyson. And then he's had two college jobs since. The reason he's not in coaching right now is because he's bad at it now. He, like he's lost his mojo. So like Urban getting banged up and and doing that is not like the reason why he's not going to be a, a he wouldn't be a college coach again. But like you said, like you weigh the cost benefit analysis of an Urban Meyer at a place like USC, which has a new AD, which who has successfully turned around the culture within that department at least about getting everyone on the same page. I don't know how you then look at the face of public and say, hey, Urban Meyer is our guy. He'll probably be here for three, four, five years, but he's our guy. You know, I, that's not a fix. So I wish Urban the best of luck going forward in his personal and professional life. I just don't think it's going to be happening on the college level. Yeah, and he would only take a job where you can win a national championship, a top, top level job. And there's not many of those available. Now, it just so happens that this year, there's probably going to be two or maybe three available if you consider Miami still in that echelon of job. I don't know that we do anymore, really. You're shaking your head no. Miami's not in that in that tier. Right. Like at USC and then LSU, I think, are in a different tier than Miami. I mean, Miami can win a national championship because they're not on probation. They're eligible. But I would not put them in the same <laughs> class as USC and LSU. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's in a different league. And even like we'll talk about it later on. But I think you can even put LSU and USC in slightly different classes. And the big uh, cliffhanger is which one I think is in the higher class. But I think those even are a little bit separate. Well, let me just stick up for Miami a little bit. And obviously, Manny Diaz has not been fired yet. There's still games to go, blah, blah, blah. We all think Miami's going to make a change. I still think that that job, because of the location, is viable. Now, there are issues with the fact that they play 45 minutes away from their campus. That's a problem in a pro stadium. It's a um, small private school that maybe just isn't quite as fully invested in being awesome at football as it was in the 1980s and 1990s. Fair enough. That's an institutional choice and, and it may not be a bad one. Like it may be, that may be more reasonable than all these other places that, that we see now. But I still think that when you have all that talent in your backyard and you still have a brand like the University of Miami, I still think somebody can get it right. They've improved the facilities. They're, they're going to be running at some disadvantages financially compared to other programs. Fully acknowledge it. I, I still think it's a viable job. 
Yeah. Just if those three jobs are open, Miami is getting the C-level coach of, of those three jobs. It's in the back of the line of those three for They're sure. It's a terrible timing for Miami. And look, if you like if if you like losing close games to teams you shouldn't lose to, go try to get Mario Cristobal again because you will you will <laughs> enjoy that. Um, that tends to be a thing. Oh God. Um, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk we can, about Oregon. We'll talk about it. Yeah. We'll talk about Oregon. We'll talk about Miami. I have a feeling we're going to be talking a lot more about Miami down the road. It may not be in the next month, but maybe in two months we'll be having more of a deeper conversation about the hurricane, about the open. All right. Well, let's get into this. Let's get into this USC and LSU thing because we know USC is open. LSU is not open. Ed Orgeron is still the coach. But, I mean, let's be honest, the signs, the trajectory, the leaks that are starting to percolate around college football – they are not in favor of Ed Orgeron keeping his job. You know, they, they lost that game to Auburn. Auburn's not great. Auburn is okay. Auburn almost lost to Georgia State the week before. It was a nice win for them. I'm sorry, it's not a game LSU should be losing at home if you are a solid LSU program. They already got smacked around in week one by UCLA. We know UCLA is not really that good at this point. Um, I just don't see it ending well for Ed Orgeron. They have clearly not capitalized on the national championship that they won in 2019. They are deficient in talent at some key positions where they should not be deficient. And Ed, you know, just has not made good hires. The reason it worked in 2019 so beautifully was they obviously got a great quarterback who transferred in, but they – they had Dave Aranda running the defense, really good defensive coach, and he, it was sort of this stroke of genius to hire Joe Brady, who nobody knew about, to run that offense. Brady goes to the NFL, perfectly reasonable decision to make. Ed's tried a couple things. It's not working. I just ha- would say the odds are right now that LSU is going to come open, and yet I, I have a hard time sort of figuring out who a slam dunk hire for LSU might be. A lot of the talk's going to be around James Franklin for both of those jobs. If you're Franklin, wouldn't you rather go to USC if he's going to leave? Just from a personality perspective, knowing James, I just don't think, I think USC is his, fits him as a person. I don't know if LSU truly does. I think LSU is a different sort of, different sort of beast. But I will say this about Orgeron. This is what's coming up at Kentucky versus Florida, at Ole Miss, at Alabama versus Arkansas. One, two, three. That's the next six games. No, hold on. That's the next five games. That's a that's terrible. That's terrible. So you're beginning to look at the situation where you're like, forget like getting to a New Year's six. Are they getting to seven wins? I don't know if they are. Yeah, there's some losses coming up. There's more losses in there. No question about it. Give me some names. I think Lane, we, we well, I, did we mention Lane Kiffin last well, week? Well, I mean, did we joke about it? We, I don't know if it, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but no, I've said this and I say this not jokingly. I say this sincerely. Like if you're LSU and you know that Scott Woodward, who's the athletic director there, is going to go big game hunting. Like that's his mo. He's done it with every coaching hire he's ever made as the athletic director at Washington and then at Texas A&M and now at LSU, where, by the way, 
women's basketball. Who did he go get? He went and got Kim Mulkey from Baylor, right? I was about to say. I was wondering if you would be impressed by that. I've met Kim Mulkey before. It was a big deal when she was hired at LSU. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about – I mean, this is not a women's basketball podcast, and it's not going Should to be. be. Um, it, we, I mean, we could talk we women's talk basketball. I love women's I think basketball. I, but I, no, I mean, I'm saying it should be right now because I think the Kim Mulkey thing is, is interesting. Um, obviously, yeah, throughout no, the it, years. It, 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 it's, a, it's a template. Exactly. And it shows that um, uh, hiring Peterson, hiring Jimbo Fisher, I mean, those are football-related hires. And, and, and now you're at LSU. And you've made like probably the most surprising, shocking hire in women's basketball, at least in recent memory, if not the most shocking hire in college basketball, period, to get Mulkey away from Baylor. And I mentioned I, I had met Mulkey because I covered her at our Final Four, and there was, throughout the years, this very deep, very deep affection for Baylor. Like She, she stood up for Baylor when Baylor was getting slammed, uh, deservedly so. But she was like an Art Briles supporter. She was a defender of the football program, defender of the athletic department. So it's not just that he's going to go big game hunting. He's shown at LSU that he can get the job done. That's an example. I know football and women's basketball are different beasts, but that just shows you, like you said, that he's going to go, he's going to go after a big name and LSU is going to get a big name for that job if it's open. Well, and let me give you another one. Let me give you another one. At A&M, he hires Buzz Williams to coach his men's basketball team. And Buzz was at Virginia Tech at the time, had gone to the NCAA tournament a few years in a row. but. Buzz, who I know pretty well, is one of those guys who is going to, in any job he's going to look at, is going to have a list of 50 things that he wants in that uh, in that job, in that contract, with that program. And if you say no to one of them, he's just going to move on. He's like, okay, I'm fine. Like, I, I don't need this job. Like, that's Buzz Williams. And so for him to get buzz at Texas A&M shows that, yeah, not only does he like the big names and people who have successful uh, backgrounds, but but he will like come up in money, resources, whatever it takes, like whatever it takes to get that guy, he will get them. So let's bring this back to the football opening. There are not that many big names who are movable. I mean, there just never are. Right. So when you start to go down the list and I don't think Chris Peterson is really going to be a candidate. Do, do you? I, I just don't see that. Like, I don't see him. LSU doesn't seem to fit. No, I mean, the reason he went to UW, reason he went to Washington. I mean, there are a lot of reasons that are personal and professional, but that's more of a cultural fit for Chris Peterson. Chris Peterson's your Pacific Northwestern dude. Like, I don't see him going into to Baton Rouge, Death Valley. That's not yeah. that's not him. All right. So, but right. Dan, I will say. I believe Chris Peterson is going to get back into coaching. Like I think it'll be within the next two years, two cycles. I just, just don't think that LSU is the one. I don't think so either. Just doesn't fit. So who does fit? Who has one who's got the name recognition, the buzz, the juice? Who has the credibility and the personality to deal with everything that comes with, with being at LSU? I keep coming back to Lane. Like I just think it makes perfect sense. Well, look, like – what has been LSU's issue outside of that magical season for 25 Offense. years? Offense. Yeah. Lane Kiffin would tear the roof off the place. With the talent that he could recruit in Louisiana, I think he'd be a great fit from a schematic standpoint. I think the question is, do people in the industry buy into Lane's reinvention the way that some of us do? 
What do you think then? I would say no. I would say that there is still a, a sense out there that Lane is is behind the scenes that he's he's maybe a little bit of a mess. Now, I do think you know, and this is going to sound crazy to some people, but Lane did this whole off-season weight loss thing. It looks like he's taking it looks like he's taking care of himself. Like I think that kind of stuff actually matters. Like that does sort of give you the impression that when he's on his off time, when he's not doing football, that he's not like just out partying and destroying himself. And I think that that does show I think some people that maybe he's he's grown up a little bit, he's more mature and all all those clichés. I just think like there's very few people who could actually handle the public side of that job and I think Lane can. And I think it it would be awesome because it would re- totally reignite the Alabama LSU rivalry in a way that that frankly Lane just can't do at Ole Miss, uh, and we saw that this past weekend. And I think he would recruit the hell out of the job, you know. And there are some other people like I'm, I've been trying to come up with names, Mike Gundy, you know. But I just I just don't think there aren't that many people who've won at the level that you need. At LSU, and or that we think Scott Woodward is going to want. I just think Lane's got to be at the top of the list. So let's say that there are three, there are three big names, like Pete Thamel wrote about Yahoo the other day. If there are three names, are they Fisher because of the connection and the fact that his buyout is obviously zero? Um, Lane Franklin, are we keeping that at three? If we're talking big name, big name. Yeah, I think those are the three that are the biggest names that you could see potentially being in the mix. But, you know, Jimbo, I mean, my God, they law, they're terrible. Yeah. And you're talking about an offensive. Yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it's not, it's crazy. Like, this is how much things can change in our sport. Like, three weeks ago, he's like the big name, right? And three weeks later, you're like, oh, man. I don't know about that. You know, that's how, I mean, three weeks from now, he could beat Alabama and be the flavor of the month again. I just, I just don't know if he's uh, as much of a no brainer. Sarkeesian is a guy that I would have loved to see this, get this job. I understand that that's the non-starter right now, but a year ago, if this opening happens, I think Sark's a good fit for LSU. Um, A second tier candidate I like is Mel Tucker. Um, SEC experience. Yeah, That's a good name, actually. That's a really good name. uh, Mel Tucker's getting money this offseason one way or another, whether it's from Michigan State. I don't, I don't know if it would be anywhere else than Michigan State, but if I'm LSU, he's like the, one of the top guys. When I work through my top three and I get no's and then I can't sell Kiffin to the people who matter, Mel Tucker's on that list. What about Brian Kelly? thought about that, but I just don't. It's just too entrenched. Yeah, you know, he's at, I think my impression is that Brian Kelly, and rightfully so, is really proud of being the winningest coach in Notre Dame history. I think it's kind of starting to reflect and dawn on him in the last couple of years, maybe two years. Like what kind of, not reputation, just what kind of. Legacy? Legacy. He's, yeah. yeah, but it's hard to say legacy because he doesn't have that title. But it's like what kind of, what kind of history he's going to leave, you know, what his story is going to be. Well, that's and the thing. I think he's young enough where he doesn't feel like he's done. Well, that's the thing, though, is like at some point, if you're Brian Kelly, do you look at it and say, all right, I'm the winningest coach in Notre Dame history, but I'm not going to win a national championship here. We're just we're always going to come up short because we just can't get as many 
of the types of guys you need. We can get some of them, and they've done a great job recruiting, but we're just not going to get quite enough to go win a playoff. And so maybe at LSU you can. They just need a quarterback. <laughs> they just need a quarterback. You know? Yeah, no, you can at LSU. There's no doubt about it. Um, Kelly is definitely interesting. Um, you know, Look, if you're going to stick in the SEC, I mean, we don't talk enough about the work that Mark Stoops is yeah, Stoops is Stoops is great. Really good. Yeah. So is he sexy enough? Is he sexy enough? Same thing with like a Dave Clawson. Dave Clawson. Great coach. Not sexy enough. Dave Clawson puts up like Dave Clawson's putting up heavy weights on the bench. If it depends on your definition of sexy, but that dude can put it up. Um I don't know what Stoops is doing nowadays for an exercise regimen. But um Clawson I like Dave Clawson. I like Dave Clawson for a major power five job opening. I just don't know if it's LSU. Yeah. What about Clawson for USC? I mean, absolutely, absolutely. That is not a hire that's going to drum up uh, a lot of uh, happy responses from the fan base, and I think that fan base is a little bit delusional. But he works at a private school. He works with limited resources. He's a talent developer. He's a talent developer at quarterback in particular. So, yeah, Dave Clawson. There are a couple like big name Power Five jobs. I think he would be a fit in. Just don't know if it's LSU. All right, well, that's enough coaching carousel talk for now. Let's get back to the season. Last weekend, it felt like the narrative has now shifted a little bit that, oh, it's all this chaos, all this chaos in college football is going to be one of those years like 2007. Now it seems like the narrative is that Alabama-Georgia is an inevitable matchup in the SEC title game and then again in the national title game. And there's just really nothing anybody can do about it. Do you buy that? I mean, I buy that right now because you can't tell me who that that interloper team is. Like, who's that team who's going to bust up that party? I mean, that's I Iowa, know. right? It's got to be Iowa. If not Iowa, then who? It's got to be Iowa. I, I like Iowa a lot. We've talked about Iowa a lot on this. I'm just, I just closed my eyes and thought about Iowa playing Alabama. It would. I didn't like what what popped in what was in my mind's well, eye. I did, not, I did not like that picture. It was like um, that scene in Terminator Two when the bomb explodes <laughs> and everything gets obliterated. That's kind of what I just saw in my mind's eye. Well, no, let's um, let's be real. Let's yeah, be think, real. Uh, let's be real. The team that would have a chance to break that up is Ohio State if they can get there. If they can get the there. way their offense is playing, if they, if they can get there, yeah, they've got a they've got a shot against those teams just based off pure talent. But I don't think it's ridiculous, and I, and I know that. Uh, we sometimes engage in like way too early on pace projections, but I just, it's been five weeks now, you know, we're heading into the second Saturday of October and you can't say with a straight face that anyone other, but those two teams, anyone other, but those two teams have gotten the job done. I mean, they're on a different plane right now, both of them. You saw it on Saturday. Yeah. With Alabama, it was exactly like what we had talked about before, which is don't be fooled by what happened at Florida. That was a, I don't want to say it was a fluke, but it was a game where they got up big early. They let their foot off the gas. They got a little tired and they had two weeks to fix some of that stuff and hear Saban yell at them in practice. And they were going to end up looking more like Alabama against Ole Miss. I had a hundred percent confidence that was going to be the case with Georgia. I mean, what we're seeing is potentially one of the best defenses in college football since like 
Alabama 2011. I thought you were going to say like since Michigan 1906. No. Because that's what they're doing in terms of scoring. You know what I mean? But it's true. Like those teams that outscored, you know, uh, some some YMCA team from Ann Arbor by 100 points. Suwanee. That's what they're doing on defense. Yeah, they've given up, uh, what, 23 points in five games? Yeah, it's ridiculous. That's really good. That's ridiculous. I don't care who they play. They've played three SEC teams. They just played a top 12 or top 11 Arkansas team and beat them 37 nothing. So, um I think that, like we're talking about, we're in agreement, as is everyone, that you put those teams here and then everyone else is over there. I think even within that top two Alabama-Georgia, there's, I mean, who cares really? But there's a great argument and conversation to be had about which team deserves to be number one. Like which team of those two has been more impressive? It feels weird not to say Alabama, but it probably is Georgia. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we're going to end up seeing that game twice. Like, I just have every confidence we're we're going to see it. And it's actually unfortunate in a way because that that SEC championship game is going to be meaningless. It's going to be I, I, like you almost wonder, like you almost wonder if both of those teams get there undefeated, and they both do like hundred percent vanilla game plans because, well, because they know that that they're going to end up playing each other a second time, like, and they know that they're going to get into the playoff. If they're both undefeated, they're both getting in the playoff, regardless of who wins that game. So what's the point of even trying? Sit Bryce Young. Oh, no, I mean, it's not going to happen. Both getting yeah, in. It's not going to happen. No, but it's true. Like They're both getting in. Uh, one team is the one seed. The other team is no lower than the three seed. I mean, it's almost it is. it would be the most meaningless game in SEC championship history. And I would love it if they played backups. Like <laughs> Nick Saban saved all of his four-game redshirt true freshmen and just played them and got them ready for 2023 and beyond, or 2022 and beyond. Um, yeah, there's a it's it's a march towards December 2nd or whatever it is. Um, and I just don't know how... It's weird. I see Alabama slipping up before I see Georgia slipping up. A lot of that has to do with the schedule, but I just don't see either one of those teams stumbling on the way there. I just don't. Well, the one thing that could potentially impact Georgia at some point is if JT Daniels just can't get healthy. And, you know, it's it's a little bit, I wouldn't say weird, but, you know, it's this oblique injury and then it's the lat and, you know, that's a pretty nebulous area. I mean, it's a large muscle and it's sort of, you don't really know exactly what's going on, but whenever a guy misses this much time with what, initially maybe seemed like kind of not a big deal, it starts to make me a little suspicious about what's going on. Now, the good news for George is, is Stetson Bennett's playing great football. And shout out to him, you know, a guy who, you know, sounds like he should be British royalty, Stetson Bennett the fourth, you know, out, out having tea at Buckingham Palace, um, is is, you know, he's a he's a good he's a good player. Like he's not JT Daniels. And they're going to be more limited when he's in there. But he has gone from a guy who looked like he just could not function at all in the SEC to a guy who they put in there and they feel pretty comfortable. Um, but they got They do need to get JT Daniels right if they're going to go all the way with this thing. Yeah, and I, and I think they might need to get him right soon. I mean, just looking at their schedule, their their big games are coming up. Auburn, Kentucky, Florida, all coming up the next three games. You know, So from there, it's all downhill until Alabama. 
Um, just my fear would be that, like you're saying, Stetson Bennett has played great because I think they've learned and learned the hard way last season that he has limitations. There are things that he can do, things that he obviously cannot do. Um, he's very talented. He's a starting quarterback in the SEC, but I, I think that they've discovered that, hey, let's ask him to do less. And that's obviously a winning formula against Arkansas. Is that a winning formula against Auburn? Probably. But against Florida? We know what Florida's capable of. You know, I think they need to have Daniels healthy at least by cocktail party, if not for Kentucky. Yeah, you, you've mentioned Kentucky three times now. You, you are in love with Kentucky. Look, like, I just, I just think that there is something that, that he's done at Kentucky that, is, that we just don't talk about enough. We just don't, like, uh, not just you and I, but just people who cover college football do not talk enough about what he's done at Kentucky. Um, they're not world beaters this year, but they're a different football team, and they're different on offense because they have two, I wouldn't say game-changing, though I think the receiver is, but two hugely important transfers in Will Levis, who came over from Penn State, who drinks um, his coffee with mayonnaise, and Wandale Robinson, who came over from Nebraska, who... Um, has been a game changer. I mean, just a game changer in terms of his explosiveness. So I think they're a little bit different than they've been, and they've been really good in the past. I think Kentucky is a – I mean, they have that leg up on Florida. They could be the second-best team in the East, and they could be a factor for New Year's Six. They're interesting. They're just an interesting program. You know, they, they're they kind of like um, – to, to give you a, a tennis analogy, I don't know if you know the name Brad Gilbert. He's ESPN commentator. He's a former pro. He wrote this book – it was called winning ugly. And basically in the book, you know, he talks about the fact that he was a guy who, you know, did not have the prettiest game in the world, did not have the most power, the most effective strokes, but he was able to sort of drag his opponents into the style of game he wanted to play and was able to beat them often despite limitations. And he was able to hang around the top 10 in the world. And that's what Kentucky kind of reminds me of. Like they drag you into a game that you don't want to play, but that they're totally comfortable with, and then they will just make a couple plays and beat you. It's it's crazy to watch. I mean, this the box scores from their wins are always incredible. Yeah, and that's a testament to coaching, right? Yeah, like to have the confidence as a yeah. coach and the and instill that confidence in your players that hey, this is every week sixty minutes, except when we play Vanderbilt. Every week sixty minutes in South Carolina, um, for them to come out clean, be unbeaten at this point. Look, they're not going to win a national championship. They're going to lose to Georgia, but I would just like to give him a shout-out. I think Stoops has done a fantastic job. All right, you wrote, uh, as we watched the games on Saturday, about Cincinnati and the playoff committee and kind of how they're going to be viewed. You know, it was a it was a great win for them at Notre Dame. I would like to see them get a shot if they go undefeated. I just have this nagging cynicism about how they're going to get evaluated by the playoff committee, despite that win against Notre Dame. I just, until it happens, I just will be endlessly cynical that they get the benefit of the doubt against a, a comparable power five team. Yeah. And I think that's fair to be cynical. And I think it's fair to expect that they don't get in, even if they're unbeaten, unfortunately or not. What they have done though, is, is force the committee to address that question. Not just, hey, Cincinnati is a good football team like they did last year. Look at where they're ranking, highest ranking ever for a group of five team. I think they need to take it more seriously. I think that's going to make it uncomfortable for them. And I think that's a good thing. Um, They need to step forward and explain why they'll keep Cincinnati out. And they will explain why because Cincinnati is probably not going to get in. But uh, the difference between this year and last year, two power five wins, 
uh, brand recognition, uh, a reputation. And while we have an established top two and things are starting to become a little clearer elsewhere, there is enough chaos and anarchy to, to open up a pathway for Cincinnati. So like you said, the issue is this year they get SMU, um, but they don't get Memphis, even though Memphis is not that great. Um, the American is, as a league, not that great. They do not even get It's Central, down, yeah. Yeah, they get Central Florida, but Central Florida is down there, QB. Um, they're a little bit... They just lost the Navy. Yeah, they're spiraling a bit. So I, don't, I just don't think the resume is going to be there overall to get them in, but it'll be enough at 12 or 13 and 0 to force the committee to tell us why they're not in. And it won't be just good enough to put them eighth. I think they'll finish a little bit higher than that. It's, it's unfortunate for them that the Indiana win is just not going to have much value. And you were kind of counting on the Indiana game having some playoff value based on what Indiana did last year, but it's, it's, it's just not working out that way. The good news for Cincinnati is a lot of these other teams are kind of falling all over themselves like Oregon. And you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Mario Cristobal losing games. He should win. Like how many years in a row is this that Oregon is just gagging games that like there was a Stanford game a couple years ago where they didn't kneel on the ball and then they turned it over and they lost. There was um, the Auburn game. You know, they played Auburn and should have won that one. I mean, they statistically dominated the game and ended up losing somehow. There was a game against Arizona. They're in position to make the playoff. And they're losing to Kevin Sumlin. Was it Or was it Arizona State? It was one of the two. I think it was Arizona State. I thought that was Arizona. I'd have to look it up. It was one of the two, but it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. They lost the game and they got beat soundly and they were the much better team. And, like... This has now happened every single year, and I, it, I, it's amazing. I actually don't hear a lot of college football people, and, and especially in the media, criticizing Mario Cristobal at all. And I like Mario. I mean, we had him on the pod last year. Like he's a great, great guy, and I think he's done a good job. But like, this is a sport you only play twelve games a year. You cannot be blowing a game a year that that you should win. Like that just does not happen with. The great programs. Maybe it happens once every three years, but it's happening one or two times a year. It's ridiculous. Right. I think the frustration comes from the fact that there are nine or ten weeks a year where they look like world beaters. Yeah. I mean, not Alabama good, yeah. but you can't say through a couple of weeks that they weren't worthy of making the playoff. They didn't look that part. Um, so I think that's where the frustration comes in. Issue for Oregon right now is that it's Wednesday, October 6th. I don't think they're done yet. I just don't think that – I think there's more losses coming. and I think there's going to come a point where we look back on Ohio State and think, how the hell did that happen? Um, look, I, and, I, and I think we are hard on coaches. I think Chris Ball is a coach that we're hard on. I made kind of a, a snarky remark about him earlier. This isn't an easy job. I think he's a successful coach who always is going to have Oregon in the mix for a Pac-12 championship. But I think the expectations around that program, and I know inside that program, um, are a lot higher than that. So the the end question is, eventually, at some point, if this kind of theme doesn't change for Oregon, is Cristobal the guy who's going to get you over the hump? And it's way too early to say the answer to that, but it's a question that I think Oregon at some point will have to look and address. Listen, the West Coast is down right now. Everybody's down. Washington has taken a dip. USC's obviously a mess. Stanford's not what they were. Like, all the programs of the last decade, on the West coast that have been good at one point or another are down except for Oregon. 
they need to take advantage of that and make the playoff. Like if you can't make the playoff in this out of this Pac-12 when it's this down and you are so much better and so much more organized than everybody else, like when are when are you going to do it? If James Franklin goes to USC, he's going to suck all the air out of the room in that entire conference. You know what I mean? He's just going to dominate that conference. He's going to dominate the the storylines in February and January, June and August. It's going to be all about SC and Franklin. So you're right. This is a moment um, for Oregon, and they're kind of blowing it. I'm looking right now at the Pac-12 standings. Arizona State and Oregon State, top of the divisions right now. Yeah, I mean, what's that, what's that about? But still, like, like, what's that about? I don't. Well, Oregon State, Jonathan Smith's doing a nice. He's job doing a very Oregon nice State. job. Yeah, um, but but that's not what you want to see at this point of the season. That's just not what you want to see. That's not <laughs> no. what you want to see. No, All right, you, you don't you, at any point of the season, honestly. <laughs> you mentioned James Franklin, and uh, let's get into this week's games because James Franklin has one of the biggest games of his career at Penn State this week going to Iowa and it's a top five matchup. Kinnick is going to be absolutely off the chain. What do you think about this one? Iowa's is a very small favorite. It's, it's almost a pick them game. You know, Penn state, they're five and zero, oh, but, but they've kind of, I, I would say they've sort of, you know, they scraped by against Auburn. They scraped by against Wisconsin. This is to me, going up another level when you got to go to Iowa, do you think Penn State will be ready for the kind of game that they're going to be forced to play there? Oh, okay. That's a great question. I mean, in terms of being ready, mentally prepared, and aware of what's at stake, yeah, I think they'll be ready. I think they've been ready all season to, to carry over the way they finished the pandemic year and hungry to rewrite the narrative around the program. Um, are they ready for this specific game that they're about to play? Um, I don't think anyone. Uh, and I think I'm paraphrasing a, a quote. No one's really ready to get punched in the face until it actually happens, and then you're like you're seeing double and and your night's over. I don't think Penn State's ready to get punched in the face by Iowa because I don't really think anyone really knows what they're getting into against Iowa until all of a sudden it's the first quarter. You're down ten nothing. You just turn the ball over at your sixteen, and like things are getting bad, and you're wondering when can I get out of here and how quickly. Um. Iowa tends to do that to teams. I expect they're going to do that to Penn State because I think, Dan, Penn State's a really good team. Um, they're a New Year's Six team. I just don't know like if there's another hidden gear there that we haven't seen. Like There's a switch that they can flip on in this environment and win this game. I, I just don't know if that's there, and I think Iowa's the safe pick because of that. Yeah, and then when you're at Kinnick, you have to go into that salmon-colored covered locker room, right? Or what is it, pink or something? Is it? I think we go with... It's probably closer to salmon. Yeah, I don't think they went straight out uh, Barbie Barbie car pink, but I think um, you got to got to deal with the psychological uh, tricks. You know, Kirk Ferentz is a psychological uh, uh, psyops from from Iowa. Kirk Ferentz are always intense. Um, like what Iowa did to Maryland last week, it was like what three nothing, seven three, something like that. And all of a sudden, you went to make a sandwich, and it was twenty eight three, and they forced seven turnovers. It was fifty one fourteen. They're not going to do that to Penn State, but that's a serious concern. A serious concern. If you believe that Sean Clifford's improved, I think he has to a degree. Um, but they're going to force Sean Clifford to win that game. I don't know if he's going to get out of there clean. I'd say the second biggest game of the weekend coming up is Red River. And 
I thought Oklahoma looked a bit better last week. It seemed like their offense maybe started to smooth out some of the rough edges a little bit. Um, you know, they they had a couple defensive issues against Kansas State, but for a team that had been really struggling to score points, I'm sure that felt good for for them to score 37 uh, at Kansas State and and be able to kind of close out that win. You know, Texas, aside from the the game against Arkansas, has been pretty good, and this this feels like you know maybe and maybe there'll be a rematch of the Big Twelve Championship game. You obviously have Oklahoma State kind of in that mix as well, but you know I I think kind of the way things are shaken out, like for Oklahoma, I don't want to say this is the season, but it almost feels like. It almost feels like this is the game that it is going to turn them one way or the other. Who are you picking in this game? Because I was really yeah, torn. I don't know. Uh, Texas yeah. with under Casey Thompson has been has been different. They've been better. I don't know if that's because they played Rice and and Texas Tech and TCU or what, but I think I'm going to pick Oklahoma. Yeah, I, I I think it's a safe pick. But we were like mentioning about Penn State having another gear. Like Oklahoma's got to find that against Texas because whatever you say about Texas and yeah, they did get blown out in Fayetteville. This is the best team Oklahoma's faced all year, and, and like you said, this might be the best team that they end up facing all regular season. They may end up playing them twice. So if you ask me which team in the Big 12 is most capable of snapping OU's uh, stranglehold on the conference title, I think we would all agree that it's Texas. So yeah, it's a show-me game for Oklahoma because if they don't come out to play, I think they can very, very easily lose this game. Yeah, I think with Oklahoma, you like you kind of look at the schedule after they get by this one. Well, then they have TCU, Kansas, Texas Tech. To me, that gives them like another month to get a lot better, and I think they will. And that's kind of been the the trajectory for Lincoln Riley's teams anyway. I just think they got to get by this one. I think if they get by this one, I think they're going to be in good shape. You know, I just we'll just see. I think Texas and te- certainly. Certainly under Charlie Strong and under Tom Herman, Texas played better in this game than they played any other game. Like they they brought it. So we'll see. Um you've got another ranked matchup with Arkansas going to Ole Miss. You know, with Ole Miss, we'll see kind of the physical effect of playing Bama. Typically teams do not do well that that following week, but at the same time, Arkansas got physically manhandled against Georgia, and they've been on a run of tough games. I kind of think Arkansas needs a bit of a breather right now, and they're just not going to get it. So, Totally agree with you. I think this is not a great matchup for Arkansas. I think Matt Corral and Lane Kiffin are motivated. I mean, he threw six picks last year in this game, and they got upset. So this is kind of a – it's a reset for Ole Miss, um, an opportunity for them to do that. And Arkansas, I just don't – for all the great work Pittman has done, and as far as that program has come, this is not a great matchup. I just don't like it on paper. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. Uh, Georgia goes to Auburn. Georgia's 15.5-point favorite. I don't see Auburn coming close in this game. I, it was a great win for them at LSU. They're 4-1. and one. They've, they've certainly not been bad. And it's, it's a rivalry game, and I've seen funky things happen in this matchup. But Auburn just does not strike me like so much of Auburn relies on Bo Nix pulling plays out of his rear end. And I just don't think you can do that against Georgia. Yeah. I was just thinking um, uh, when Bo Nix tries to do his Johnny Menzel impersonation, like he did against LSU against Georgia, how that's going to play out. Georgia with Stetson Bennett or without 
with JT Daniels. I think they win this game comfortably. So we talked a little bit about Kentucky. They're three-point favorites over LSU this week. I, I have no idea the last time Kentucky was favored over LSU. It's It's got to have been, I mean, maybe Jerry DiNardo era. Like, I, I, I don't even, like, Jerry DiNardo versus Hal Mummy. Like, I don't even know. It, it had to have been forever. Um, I, I think the intrigue will be if LSU loses, is there a coaching change made the next week? You know, I think we're kind of to that point. Yeah, you know, on Sunday. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Whew. I mean, he lose to Kentucky, and they're got. We oh, thought probably we'd be talking yeah. a lot about Alabama at A and M. I don't think we need to do much talking about this one. A and M has had terrible time offensively. Um, I would like to uh, to share a quote with you. <laughs> Just yeah, yeah, yep. yep. I know where you're going with this. this. I know up. exactly where you're going. Oh, here we go. This is a quote from a story, and it's a screen grab. I'm sorry I can't give credit to the reporter. But on Wednesday, the Texas A&M head coach took a mini jab at his former boss at a luncheon in Houston. An Aggies fan asked Fisher, what's the key other than Saban retiring to beating Alabama? Fisher's response, we're going to beat his ass even when he's there. Not this year or not. Maybe next year. <laughs> not this not year. Not this year. That came from uh, one of those summer caravan things that those coaches do, which which we didn't really get during the pandemic. Um, and you used to get a lot of like good quotes out of that because the beat reporters would always kind of tag along because it was their opportunity to you know get some some time in with the coach um, afterwards. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as as these things go, I don't know if it was that spicy. However. Alabama does a great job of using anything that anybody says, coach, media, otherwise, and and they will blow it up and they will make it a thing and they will beat you by four touchdowns. And that's probably what's going to happen here. I think so. Look, it's it's on the road. Maybe you give A&M a touchdown because of the environment, but that just means they'll lose by 17. And then finally, a game I want to mention this weekend, Michigan at Nebraska. Michigan 5-0. and They're only a three-and-a-half-point favorite. Shout-out to Nebraska. They've gotten their act together a little bit. Um, I would say that final score from last week over Northwestern, 56-7, to was, was about as surprising a score as you could possibly have. Maybe not that they won the game, but I mean, 56-7 to over Northwestern, is that is quite something. And given the way that Nebraska had kind of found – ways to lose games earlier this season. Maybe they are turning a bit of a corner. I guess we'll find out this weekend. Yeah, we're going to find out on Saturday against a team that's really physical, runs the ball like crazy, and rushes the quarterback really well. Um, I think it's a little early to say Nebraska has turned a corner just from beating Northwestern. This is the worst Northwestern team that Fitz has had in a while, certainly the youngest. Um, but, yeah, you're seeing positive signs. But look, like when they lost to Michigan State, it's because they, they can't get out of their own way. and they, they trip on their own shoelaces all the time. So, I mean, my guess would be whether at home or not that they find a way to lose this game. But they've got a shot. You know, I think if you were in a, in a straight up pick them top 25 competition with your colleagues, this might be a game that you would pick to try to get an edge on people. Um, so we'll see who, uh, how those picks roll out on usatoday.com tomorrow. It looks to me like Michigan in the game against uh, Wisconsin last week where they, you know, they, they, they won like they were supposed to win. 
I, I think there is maybe a, a confidence that they're showing a you know a belief in the way they're playing that maybe you haven't seen before under Jim Harbaugh, where it would seem like some of the possessions they they would have offensively, it just it, it was just almost like they were just like they were just to use a hockey phrase, they were squeezing the stick really hard, you know, and 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 they weren't able to they weren't able to to just play in the flow of the game. It feels like they're doing that a lot better now, and maybe that's just because Wisconsin's not any good. But I, to me, that was a big win for Michigan because they had not won a, a, those kinds of games, and certainly not by three touchdowns. So I'm excited to see how they look going into Nebraska against a team that has, you know, gotten better the past couple of weeks. But it's a game Michigan. It's another road game Michigan should win, and then you start doing that back to back, then you might have something. Yeah. Well, this is the best team they've played all season. Um, I know they've played Washington. they played Wisconsin. Uh, I've seen Nebraska play the last – Yeah, those are not good teams. Those are not very good teams. Uh, Nebraska last three games. Um, like you said, they're starting to show something. Um, and I think at least by showing this progress, they've got a brand-new AD, um, a former uh, like defensive end linebacker, Trev Alberts. Um, and I think this is uh, a good signal, at least to the new admin, that – Scott Frost might have an idea what he's doing. And I think Scott Frost does have an idea what he's doing. He just wasted a whole lot of time getting to this point. And we are going to waste no time ending the podcast right there. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on the College Football Fix for this week. Please subscribe and like us and leave a comment on whatever podcast app you use to access us. We will be back next week with another one. Hope everybody has a great weekend watching college football. Stay safe. We'll talk to you next time. The College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.